Well, if you have your Bible and you'd like to follow along with us during the sermon today, please open it to Acts chapter 11. We'll be looking at several passages in chapter 11 and then a little bit in chapter 13. I'll prompt you when we get to those places as we move through the sermon today. The words will be on the screen as we approach those passages. Would you pause and pray with me? May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And the people of God said, Amen. During the first half of this summer, in case you're new with us, we're in a series of messages called Becoming a Transformational Church, where we're taking a deeper look at the first century church in Antioch of Syria. That's in modern-day Turkey now, but back then, Antioch of Syria. You might call this a case study for our church today. The gospel took hold there at the church at Antioch, and the Jesus movement spread through the Roman Empire like wildfire. The known world was transformed and changed, and the world has never been the same since. In our study, we're focusing on three clear attributes of a transformational church, and that's that people become more and more like Jesus as we are clothed with Jesus, we put on Christ, and that churches act more and more like a body of Christ should, and communities around transformational churches are more reflective of the kingdom of God. We are asking, how can we learn from the history of this ancient Antioch church as we face the future that God has in store for us. The key thought is that we've got the best story ever to tell. We've got the best news in the world to tell. So can we learn how to be innovative and creative in sharing this good news? This is what we would call being or embracing an entrepreneurial mindset, uh, a necessary ingredient for being a transformational church, to be innovative and creative and to think uh, outside of the box. When a church has this entrepreneurial kind of mindset, their default answer to doing new things is, is yes, let's consider it, let's give it a chance, rather than, no, I, we've never done it that way before, we're, we're not going to go there. You might not adopt every strategy or proposal, but this attitude of saying, okay, we'll give it a chance, we'll try it, this attitude of yes embraces the possibility of change when an opportunity is presented, and, and we just might experience the work of God in whatever that is. An illustration for us, a modern illustration, is a church called Life Church in Oklahoma. One of their staff members is named Bobby Gruenwald. He had a background in technology before he was called to ministry. He was a so in software development and had grown a company and then sold it and was called into ministry. And as he learned that Apple, the company Apple, was getting ready to launch the App Store, which you and I take for granted these days, he and his development team created an app called Bible. They were hoping that the it would reach 80,000 people in the first year. It launched the very same day that Apple launched the App Store, and they got a whole lot more than what they dreamed for. They got 83,000 downloads in three days. 
It's now called version, Y-O-U version, and many of you probably in this room use it as your online Bible app. As of this past Thursday when I researched it, they have over 327 million app installs, 16.7 billion chapters of the Bible read, 222 million Bible verses shared on social media, 29 million Bible plans completed, and there are 1,635 different versions of the, of the Bible available throughout the world, and 1,171 different languages. And I think that's just incredible. That's just amazing. And they even have a children's Bible to go along with it. When Isabella was younger, I remember when the children's Bible app came out, and we downloaded that, and we would read the Bible stories, which are all animated on her tablet. And uh, so the YouVersion app has definitely had an, an impact on our family. I wonder how many lives have been changed and transformed through this digital mission. Life Church calls it digital missions, by the way. We can only imagine. But what if the leaders at Life Church had squashed the idea? What if they would have said, well, Bobby, we've never done it like that before. We're sorry. Or the Bible has always been in print, and so it needs to remain in print. Personally, I love the feel of my regular paper Bible. And it's my primary go-to, by the way. Yes, I like digital, but this is my primary go-to, the paper version. What if they would have said, we don't have the money to invest in that. We've got a lot of other things that we need to do as a church. Or what if they said, Bobby, we're sorry, but we're a church, not a software developer. But rather, this church embraced something new with an innovation kind of attitude, an entrepreneurial kind of attitude, and it has revolutionized the way that people read the Bible around the world. As a church, the big C church, as well as local churches like us, we need to figure out how to embrace new and innovative ideas and missions and ministries so that we can reach an ever-changing world around us. If you've been around for a while, you know that the church used to be the center of the community. How many of you remember a day, even it could be even 20, 30 years ago, when everything really revolved around the church? Raise your hand. When everything really centered around the church, when you planned your family calendar around what was happening at church. You know, Sundays and Wednesdays and then vacation Bible school and summer camps and different um, trips that the church would engage in. Uh, you held those sacred and, and everything else kind of revolved around that. And it doesn't happen that way anymore. Church is no longer the center of the community. And we can't change that, but we can try to figure out how to work in this world. Today, the, the church is crowded out by a lot of other options that people have. Church attendance and volunteer involvement get edged out. For the first time in the modern era, people with no religious affiliation comprise the largest segment of the population that identifies as religion. There are more people who identify as no religion than people who identify as a Christian, for instance. Add to this the complexity of the family, technology, social media, stress, and the emotional and mental health challenges that we face, 
as well as a divided political climate, among other things, it's no surprise that we have our work cut out for us in the world today. We cannot afford to just expect people to come to us. Rather, we must figure out how to go to them, how to be the presence of Christ wherever we go and allow God to work through us in those places and spaces. It's embracing a whatever-it-takes mentality as we seek to be the presence of Christ in the broken world that's around us. In this spirit, I want to look today at briefly at four innovations from the church at Antioch that have bearing on us today. The first one is pretty simple, and that's the establishment of the church itself. In verse 20 of chapter 11, we see this happening. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So the, there was the establishment of the church. And you, you might say, Pastor Bob, that doesn't sound very innovative, but listen. Prior to his ascension, Jesus told the disciples they were to receive power and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Yet in the early Christian movement, the, the church fairly remained in Jerusalem. It didn't expand beyond that area. There were exceptions, as you remember, Philip and his ministry in Samaria and also his ministry to the Ethiopian eunuch. And you remember Peter's ministry to Cornelius, the Roman centurion. But these were exceptions, not the rule. After the wave of persecution hit and Stephen was martyred, Luke records in verse 19 of our chapter that several men made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch and ministered to the Jewish populations there. Jesus said first Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and so forth, right? So there, in their mind, they were to minister to those who were from the Jewish background, Hebrew tradition. However, verse 20 tells us that other followers of Christ from Cyprus and Cyrene shared the gospel with the Gentiles in Antioch. And this was new and innovative, an intentional Gentile ministry. They preached the gospel in a way that it had never been preached to a group of people who had never heard the good news in a city where it had never been shared. They created an incredible love of the gospel in Antioch and a large number of Gentiles, people outside of the Hebrew family, turned to the Lord. When you read these verses, you don't see any great names recorded in the story. The growth experienced in the church at Antioch was largely because of the anonymous people who went there to share what Jesus had done in their lives. If you think about it, there are some giants of Scripture that we want to see when we get in heaven. I imagine the line will be long for Moses and Esther and Elijah and Daniel. We want to hear the stories again and talk to them. And what about in the New Testament, like John and Mary and Peter and Paul? But what about the scores of anonymous men and women who carried the gospel to places like Antioch, whose names are not listed? Maybe their line won't be so long. They should be thanked for their courage and their vision and for opening the door to the Gentiles to be among Christians because their impact is just as important as those whose names are familiar to us. 
God always uses the unexpected to achieve his great purposes. So not only was a church founded, but second, there was an intentional teaching ministry at Antioch. We take this for granted today that Christian education just kind of happens as a church. It's just part of what we do. Uh, But this was very intentional and it was innovative. In verses 25 through 26, we see this. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. They intentionally taught great numbers of people in the ways of Jesus. Think about it. These were Gentiles. They did not come from the Hebrew background. They didn't know the stories. They didn't know the creation. They didn't know the Torah, the first five books in the Old Testament. They didn't know the stories of the prophets. They didn't know the Psalms. They didn't know any of this. And Barnabas and Saul taught them all of this for an entire year. When Barnabas saw what God was doing, he stayed in Antioch instead of going back to stay in Jerusalem. And then he knew that he needed help. We talked about this last Sunday. So he went to Tarsus and found Saul and brought him back to Antioch so that the two of them together could teach and disciple and help people grow in Christ Jesus. Imagine how Saul and Barnabas were able to teach the stories of God to these people, to ground them in the stories of the Old Testament, to help them to know the essentials of the Gospels of Jesus, the Gospel of Jesus. Uh, They didn't have them in print at that time, to love God and to love neighbor as self. Today we have all sorts of teaching resources to help us to grow in Christ, and our church is very intentional about that. Yes, we're continuing to see how we can be more effective in our discipleship ministry. Matthew is doing a great job leading us in that direction, but we are intentional about discipleship here at HRBC. This kind of systematic teaching and doctrine was very important so that these early Gentile believers would have a foundation built on rock and not on sand. There's another interesting dynamic that we might not think of when we read this story first through, and that is that Barnabas and Saul had to work closely together. Later, they would have some differences. They would go different directions. We'll read that soon. But here in Antioch, Barnabas was clearly the leader who took charge, and he went to find Saul and bring him back. But once they returned to Antioch, Barnabas knew that he needed to step back into the second chair and allow Saul, who was a Pharisee, who was trained in the Hebrew Scriptures, who knew the traditions, but was also converted to be a follower of Jesus, to, to take the lead. And that's not easy, is it? The story is told of Leonard Bernstein, composer and famed conductor of the world-renowned New York Philharmonic, was asked what he believed would be, was to be the most difficult instrument in the orchestra to play. He responded, second fiddle. One writer says, when you examine the life of any great individual you soon discover an entire section of second fiddlers, support people, gifted in their own rights, but content to play their part seated in the second chair. I played the clarinet, bass clarinet in band in high school, and it would have been hard to get bumped from one chair to the other. Some of you know what that's like. 
And we have to be willing to play whatever part that we are assigned. And that's what Barnabas did. Reminds me of, of Nick Foles. You know, the Philadelphia Eagles with Carson Wentz were projected to win the Super Bowl with well, most sports commentators would, would have agreed with that. But when Carson Wentz tore his ACL when he dove into the end zone on that touchdown, Nick Foles had to step up from backup quarterback. And there were some doubts. But now we know the story that Nick Foles led the Eagles through the playoffs and ultimately to a victory over the New England Patriots and Tom Brady to win their very first Super Bowl. And he did that humbly from second chair. And he will continue in that role. He knows that Carson Wentz is the number one quarterback. But it's a, a great story for us to see that sometimes we are called to play another part than first chair. Very innovative to see this play out in Antioch. They modeled teamwork and effective leadership as they taught people the ways of Jesus. And then a third innovation that we see happening is they were first called Christians. Verse 26, they were first called Christians, the disciples were, at Antioch. We know this. Pastor Bob, that's not very innovative. What did they do to be innovative there? Hear me out. If the term Christian was most likely a term of derision and ridicule or a derogatory nickname, then there must be something behind this new movement. There must have been something behind what they were doing that they would be called Christians. There was very much of a pagan culture there. People worshipped all sorts of gods and all kinds of behavior going on in the name of their gods and goddesses. So what caused such a stir? Well, the believers talked about Jesus all the time. When they met someone in the market, when they were shopping, when they were watching the athletic games, when they were washing clothes at the river, when they were working in their shops, when they were out in the fields, they spoke of Christ as the center of their lives. They shared of this new experience of Jesus that had changed their entire outlook on, on tomorrow the one who gave them hope, the one who was the center of their lives, the one who forgave their sins, who was the source of their new life. Christ was the focus of their worship and the reason for their ethical and moral behavior. They treated people differently because of what they had experienced in Christ Jesus and what they had been taught. They stood out in stark contrast to the unbelievers in the community and were given a derogatory name, christ en Christian. Those are the Christians. Be like people calling us Jesus freak today. And we gladly say, I, I step right up as a Jesus freak. Right? I am a Christian, a Christ follower, a Christian, a follower of the living God. A Jesus freak. That's what it would have been like for them. And they were innovative in the way they talked about their faith and talked about God, and God blessed them on account of it. So they were called Christians, and we see that something very innovative because of the way they lived. And then one more. One more innovation. The very first intentional international missionary movement. We take for granted today that churches send missionaries. 
This week, a team of ours will be going to Charlotte, North Carolina on mission. We have had teams go to international places in the past from our church, and we'll have that in the future. We have partnerships in the United States and internationally. So we might think that's pretty normal, but not back here. If you look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 13. Now in Antioch, now at the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. This happened during a worship service that the Holy Spirit audibly spoke and they fasted and they prayed and they laid hands on Saul and Barnabas to send them out intentionally. They practiced fasting and prayer and the laying of hands, things that were taught to them in, from the Hebrew scriptures that were part of the foundation of the Jesus movement. They employed those right here. And after fasting and praying, they laid hands and they sent these two guys out on their first international mission trip. This is what we call, a, call the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey. It's chronicled in Acts 13 and 14, and I encourage you to read it this week. Up in the top right-hand corner of your screen is circled in yellow the city of Antioch. And then the lines that uh, go and follow the route of Paul and Barnabas take you to Cyprus, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and then back again to Antioch to then report to the church all that they had experienced. And you might say, Pastor Bob, what's innovative about this? I mean, we send mission teams quite often. That's the norm for us. Not then. Think about it for just a moment. Think of your very favorite restaurant. Think about the finest restaurant you've been to. Think about what makes that place really good. It might not be the best service. It might be a little slow. The location may be kind of inconvenient. And the decor may be, eh, take it or leave it. But the food is spectacular. The food, it's the, it melts in your mouth. It's the best steak I've ever eaten. Oh, and the stuffed flounder, oh, you, it's just makes your mouth water. Think of your finest favorite restaurant. And then you hear that they're sending their number one and number two chefs to another city to start another franchise. And you're, you're like, oh no, now what's going to happen? Why would they do something like that? That makes no sense. What about me? But the Antioch church sent their two best leaders, the ones who had stayed there to teach them for a whole year, and they were willing to take that risk, knowing that God would provide and that Saul and Barnabas had equipped leaders over the time they were teaching that there were people to step up in their place to continue the ministry. That's innovative, folks. When we send our best on mission, God provides. And that's innovative. 
Recently, I was talking to one of our college students, Rachel Jones. She just graduated, well, she just graduated from the University of Virginia, so she's now a graduate. And she's going to be doing a one-year internship with Chi Alpha, which is the largest Christian organization on campus at UVA. And she was telling me some of the things that she's going to be doing and some of the training she recently experienced. And my ears perked up when she said at the most recent teaching session she attended, one of the leaders said the theme would be whatever it takes, whatever it takes to share the gospel with people, whatever it takes. And they asked the question to all of these soon-to-be interns, are you willing to do whatever it takes in your ministry? The speaker said that the campus minister should be both spirit-led and strategically directed. And I see this in the Antioch church. They were spirit-led and they were strategically directed. They were intentional about the things we've talked about, about teaching and about sending and raising up leaders. They were spirit-led. They heard the spirit audibly speak, laid hands and prayed as they fasted and sent these leaders out. They were willing to do whatever it took to reach people for Jesus Christ and to make sure that the gospel message did not stay with them. They were relentless in their mission and set the bar high for transformational churches today. And I pray that we can learn from what happened at Antioch as we move forward. One thing I'm trying to do myself is to inform, uh, to be informed as as I lead and as I seek the ways that uh, God is moving us. And I, I know that I can't ignore the refugee problem in our world. And I cannot ignore what's happening at our borders. And so many suffering people, hurting people, persecuted people, people trying to find asylum from gangs and persecution and harm and all of the things you can imagine. And I know that this is not an easy fix. And I, I know that there are people on both sides of the aisle. There are some who want to just have the, the borders entirely open, and then there, there are others who say it should be entirely closed, that we should have a very small opportunity there. And I don't know that that's... I, I know that's... Um, that God is desiring for us as a church to speak in the midst of all of this because we can't pick and choose whom we serve, whom we love, whom we care for. Jesus said, whatever you've done to the least of these, my children, you've done it unto me. So we, we need to pray for our political leaders that they are able to come to a consensus that is humane and just and right as we seek to be people of the gospel. And in the midst of all this, to, for us to... Uh, try to sense how God is leading us as a church to minister to those who are hurting and who need a safe refuge. Um, this book is called Seeking Refuge, and it's, it's uh, by three different authors, but they're all with an organization called World Relief. And they um, tell a lot of information about the the refugee crisis and of people who are seeking asylum and people who are uh, trying to migrate to countries that can give them freedom and hope. I feel like I need to educate myself and help be better equipped to speak to this. 
And so I'm, I'm reading this book. I just got it in Friday. My pastor friend in Northern Virginia who has 55 people groups in his congregation uh, shared that this is the best book that he has read to help be informed on this. We also know that the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship and the Baptist General Association of Virginia, as well as the Baptist World of Alliance, all partners with HRBC, have some very good resources and some ways that churches can engage and help those who are in crisis right now. So pray for all of that as we seek God's wisdom. We have to ask ourselves, can we be innovative even in this way? Can we step out of our comfort zone to help those in need, even though we don't understand all of the nuances in the situation? Do we have encouragement to find new ways to reach people for Jesus? Each one of those coming into the border or trying to come into our country or other countries for refuge is a human being, a human being. They're created in the image of God. If we care, as I do, about the unborn, how can we ignore the born? We must understand that all life is precious to God, that all people matter to God, that all people are created in the image of a loving God. And how can we live into that and be a proactive force of Jesus? Pray about it. Pray about it. Are we willing to let go of some of our personal preferences so that we can see the next generation, whether here or to the ends of the earth, come to Christ? Are we willing to give up some of our own comforts and stand up to take the risk to stand up for what we believe is just and right and humane and gospel? This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, we've learned some neat things about what happened in Antioch. And we see a church in that time and place that took incredible risks to stand up for the gospel, to share the gospel, to live different. Help us learn from them that we today would be willing to do whatever it takes to see one more person come to Jesus. Whatever it takes. Move us, God. Guide us, speak to our hearts as we seek to live for you in the name of Christ. Amen.